Good morning. Several years ago, I was asked to speak at a conference abroad, and it was a, a conference for those who lived in one of the most persecuted uh, places in that particular country. And there were several reasons why I uh, did not attend and did not speak, but I have to confess that I went through some mental agony even thinking about it. And my first question was, what in the world do I have to say to persecuted saints? <laughs> you know, here, here comes a guy from a soft, cushy country who's got everything going well, and I'm talking to them about, you know, persecuted saints. didn't somehow seem quite as uh, appropriate as perhaps it should have been. But if I were doing that, I would use this text. If I were speaking to those people, this is the text I would use. And I think it's not only a text for persecuted saints. I think it's a text for those of us who are not, because we need what it says to us as well. The author did know something about persecution, and he was an expert. And so his words may be taken with a great deal of weight because he's speaking to persecuted saints as one who is a persecuted saint. And uh, I think you see that uh, in a number of, of places. But I've got some texts listed there for you. You remember Acts chapter 16 is the story of Paul, uh, he and Silas being persecuted in Philippi. And Paul makes reference to that in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. But you know that story. Let me, uh, let me give you a little fuller view of the kind of suffering that the Apostle Paul went through for the sake of Christ. And so I'll focus on 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. It seems to me that as Paul is talking about these false apostles and false teachers, one of the ways in which he distinguishes a true apostle from a false one is whether they've suffered. And apparently these fellows had not. As a matter of fact, at the end of Galatians, remember, he says there that these people want you to be pers- they, uh, you want you to be circumcised so that they might not suffer. So it's actually something they're doing to avoid suffering. Listen to this text, 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. And again, the contrast is with those who claim to be servants of Christ but who are not. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like I'm out of my mind. I am even more so with much greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with more severe beatings, facing death many times. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Three times I suffered shipwreck. Day and a night I spent adrift in the open sea. I have been on journeys many times in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my own countrymen, in dangers from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers at the sea, in dangers from false brothers, in hard work and toil, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, many times without food, in cold, without enough clothing. Apart from other things, There is the daily pressure on me for my anxious concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is led into sin and I do not burn with indignation? That, my friends, 
is a persecuted saint. And he's the one who is writing this. But let me remind you of a little bit of what it means to be a persecuted church. Now you see indications of that. Paul talks about receiving the message in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians amidst much adversity and persecution. He talks about the unity that the Thessalonian saints have with their Judean brothers for being persecuted for proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles. But I like this text in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But remember the former days when you endured a harsh conflict of suffering after you were enlightened. At times you were publicly exposed to abuse and afflictions. And at other times you came to share with others who were treated in that way. For in fact you shared the sufferings of those in prison and you accepted the confiscation of your belongings with joy because you knew that you certainly had a better and lasting possession. I think in your notes I had also Hebrews 11 verses 23 through 29. That's not really the type, the text I wanted. That talks about Moses' choice. If you go down to verses 35 through 37, he talks about those who were sawn in half and whatever. That's being persecuted. That's what persecuted saints not only did suffer, but indeed are suffering today. So there are those who are paying a great price for their faith. And this word and this epistle is written to such people. So to remember the context of uh, our text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is written to those who are suffering great persecution. He says in chapter 1 that this persecution serves the purposes of God. It, one, proves the worthiness of the saints to enter the kingdom because of their perseverance in the midst of great adversity. Secondly, it proves the worthiness of those who are unbelievers and oppressors to receive the wrath that God will pour upon them at his second coming. When you come to chapter 2, then you come to the whole area of the, the error that has been taught pertaining to the coming day of the Lord. The problem is they said the day of the Lord had come. And that created all kinds of issues and implications. And essentially, Paul answers that by saying there is a sequence of events that must occur. There must become a great apostasy, and that will be consummated by the appearance of the man of lawlessness. And those things have not happened. So the day of the Lord has not yet appeared, and that teaching is false. Now, he is not setting that aside when we come to our text because these verses that we're dealing with, uh, 2.13 through 3.5, are still set in the context of this false teaching and what Christians need to hear in order to stand and in order to go forth with the gospel. So this is really about uh, what I would call uh, the... the the firm foundation that a Christian has in verses uh, 13 through 15. You remember, was it J. Bernard McGee that was on the Bible bus and, and how firm a foundation? The gospel is the firm foundation. When you stop and think about what these false teachers were saying, they were really underrating and undercutting the gospel. 
in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul made it clear that when our Lord returned, he would come and he would raise the dead saints from the grave and they would be reunited with fellow Christians and most importantly, they would be reunited with Christ to share in his glory. Now, if the day of the Lord had come, then that resurrection had not appeared. In other words, these Christians are living their lives on the basis of the hope that has been set before them. They're enduring difficulties now for what has been promised for then. If, in fact, the day of the Lord has come and those blessings have not come with it, then you've diminished the gospel. Because the goal of the gospel is the glory of God and the saints entering into that glory uh, with him. So this message that comes from these people is a message that downgrades the gospel and therefore undercuts the very footing on which persecuted Christians, not to mention the rest of us, uh, would stand. So look at verses 13 through 15. What Paul does is to re reiterate the gospel because the gospel is the foundation. Now, having said that, he does not give us every dimension of the gospel. And one of those would be the sinfulness of men. He doesn't include in that summary Romans 1, 2, and 3, where Paul proves that all men without exception are sinners and worthy of the wrath of God and incapable of earning God's favor by any work they may do. He doesn't include that. The reason because he is focusing on the sovereignty of God and God's work in salvation rather than on the, the performance of men. This is a God-centered presentation of the gospel. It doesn't mean there are not other aspects. But when we read this version of the gospel, it focuses us on a sovereign God. And that is what we want to know when the gospel is, is being perverted and people are being shaken. I should point out that, that expression, but we, in uh, verse 13 as it begins, I think Paul is contrasting those who in just those preceding verses are not only unbelievers, but they are actually living in deceit. They are blinded, Paul says, by, by a distortion. It's almost of another version of Romans chapter 1. They've seen the manifestation of God. They know something about God's nature and they've chosen to reject that and replace it with something of their own. And, and Paul says, God gives them over to a depraved mind. So I think when these false teachers, and in particular the man of lawlessness comes, he's going to come with lies that they want to believe and that God sets them to believe because they have rejected the truth of the gospel. But we then means those who are saints whose feet are firmly planted in the truth of the gospel. So that's the contrast that I see. Now, look at the origin of salvation. He says that we are chosen by God. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, Loved by the Lord because God chose you from the beginning. Some of you are going to look twice at your translation, depending on which one you have. Some translations, a few, will say as first fruits, because there's a little textual variation in some manuscripts. It seems to me that this is really clear. Remember Ephesians chapter 1? 
The point is, God chose us, you know, at the beginning of time. Yes, in a sense, a believer ought to be first fruits because others ought to come. I don't think that's the point. The point is, God in eternity past purposed to save us. That's God-centered rather than man-centered in terms of the view of salvation. Now, he also points to the means of salvation. He says that you have been called, and I see that now, is called of God, effectively called by God, as involving several things. He talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. As I understand that expression here, he's not talking about the work of the Spirit post-salvation, the sanctifying work of him making us more like Christ. I think what it's saying is that the Spirit of God, when God chooses saints, he sets them apart. He sanctifies them and sets them in this category, which now is going to be called with the gospel. And so the means then becomes the proclamation of the gospel, and yes, those who believe. Human responsibility is not left out of this equation, but the emphasis falls upon divine calling and divine initiative because our security had better be based in God and and not in us, especially saints who are tempted to be shaken, need to understand the foundation is the sovereign work of God in salvation, and that is certain. And it also then means that the future is certain as well. The goal of salvation is the glory of God. He says, He called you, verse 14, to this salvation through the gospel that you may possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we were talking about in our worship time this morning? He has called us to share in the glory of who God is in the glory of the unity of the Trinity, in the glory of the fellowship within the Trinity, we become participants and sharers in that glory. He said earlier that we are glorified in that state and God is glorified in us. That is true. But the great glory and the big glory is the glory of God. He doesn't say the glory is to be with mother or father or sister or child in heaven. It's a wonderful thing. Fringe benefit. Being eternally in the presence of God and participating in His glory, that's heaven. And that's what Paul says is the goal of our salvation. Now, remember the false teachers are meddling with the goal. They're saying somehow if the day of the Lord has come and the saints haven't been raised from the dead and and the wicked have not been punished, then folks, the promises of God related to what would happen at the return of our Lord haven't happened. That diminishes one's sense of hope and it certainly undercuts one's sense of perseverance and uh, certainty. Therefore, he says... Take your stand, verse 15. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Remember what he said early on? He said that you not be easily, really quickly, I think, shaken or disturbed. So you got this picture of somebody with their knees a knocking, shaken away, wondering about the foundations. And here is someone standing on the firm foundation of the gospel of God. You don't shake when you stand 
on the firm foundation. So don't be shaken and stand firm. And he says, and hold on to the traditions which we have taught you, whether by speech or by letter. Now, this is very interesting. Remember he said at the beginning of chapter 2 that you might be shaken or disturbed by any one by any kind of spirit or message or letter allegedly from us? So when Paul says that you are to stand firm on the traditions, we need to understand there are two kinds of tradition. There is the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees, the traditions of men, Colossians chapter 2. Those are not the traditions we're talking about. When Paul talks about the traditions, he's talking in chapter 3 about the apostolic teaching and commands that are Scripture. He's talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, praising them for standing and holding fast to to the traditions they've been taught. That is apostolic truth. And it's tradition in the sense that it's faithful to the past and it extends into the future and needs to be passed on. So he's saying, stand in those Traditions, And when he says it's been spoken by us or written by us, I think what he's saying is this. If you heard it from these lips, that's the stuff I'm talking about. If you heard it from me, not the people who say, oh, I heard that Paul had changed his mind on this point. If you heard it from me and if you read it from me. Now, look at Paul's conclusion to Thessalonians in chapter 3 and see how firm he is in making authenticity uh, of his writings crystal clear. You guys, some of you have Microsoft software and you know that kind of gizmo that kind of looks fancy and stuff, the seal of authenticity. Look at Paul's. Chapter 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which is how I write every letter. You know what he's saying? When you see an epistle and you recognize my signature, every epistle I've ever written has my signature. If it doesn't have my signature, I didn't write it. So stand on those things that are clearly the authentic word of God spoken through the Apostle Paul either by mouth or by word. And surely that would apply as well to those Uh, other apostles. Now, look and think about the benefit of that. I was thinking about Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is talking about the gifts that have been given to the Spirit and the way that the the, the church builds each other up by speaking the truth in love. What is the result of that from Ephesians 4? Verse 14. So we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who have craftily carried out their deceitful schemes. But practicing, or I would say speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ. How do people grow to be mature and stable and firmly footed? By God's word. And when they have their feet planted in that word, and specifically here, the word of the gospel, then they will not shake in their boots, so to speak. Now, verses 16 and 17 are are really important to me. 
And I call that beyond belief. And I do not mean that the belief in the gospel is something you pass by never to return again. What I'm saying is, Paul is not content with mere academic reality. You see, like we, like we were talking about this morning, when one enters into the faith through the work of Jesus Christ, you enter into the same communion and intimacy that the Father has with the Son, that the Son has with the Spirit, that is within the Trinity. There is a relationship, not just an intellectual database, there is a relationship that Christians enter into. And so what he's talking about here is, based on this firm foundation of the gospel, that gospel results in an intimate relationship so that now our Lord Jesus ministers to us in an intimate way. Uh, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, himself, and God our Father, who loved us and by grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good thing that you say or do. Do we find comfort and stability in God's word? We do. But as Christians, if we are related to God through the work of Christ, then there is an intimate relationship that sustains us. So let me give you some examples. Psalm 73. Here's Asaph. You know it's one of my favorite psalms. But here's Asaph grousing about how the wicked are prospering and how he, the righteous, is suffering and doing so. And, and then he begins to look at things in terms of the end game. And he says, whoa, those guys are doing pretty well now, but they're headed for hell. Those guys seem to be doing pretty well now, but their life is a life lived in shaking their fist against God. They don't know God now, and they won't know Him then. They'll spend eternity, as Second Thessalonians 1 says, apart from God and His glory. So there is, there's no benefit, uh, so to speak, in, in unbelief. But the psalmist says this. He comes to his senses, and notice, he doesn't just rest on truth. It is truth, but what I'm saying is the truth is the platform that you move beyond in the sense of relationship to enter into what God has for us. But I am continually with you, God, in effect. You hold my right hand. You guide me by your wise advice. Then you will lead me to a position of honor. Whom do I have in heaven but you? I desire no one but you on earth. My flesh and my heart may grow weak. And you could even add, somebody may whip on my body, but God always protects my heart and gives me stability. That's the stability of intimacy with God. And it's based upon the gospel, which brings us to relationship with God. So I see this as the implications, the outflow of the gospel. Here's another text in Acts chapter 18. Here's Paul after some very difficult times wondering what the future holds. Acts 18 verses 9 through 11. The Lord said to Paul by a vision in the night, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent, because I am with you, and no one will assault you to harm you, because I have many people in this city. Look at this. So he stayed there a year and six months. 
could have fled out of town. God said to him, I'm with you. The intimacy that comes through a relationship with God through the person and the work of Christ based upon the gospel message. All right, now let's look at, at uh, verses, uh, uh, chapter 3 and the verses which follow. Notice that he moves from the you, the pronoun you and your, to us. So he says in verses 1 and 2, Finally, pray for us, brothers. I take it that means Paul and the apostolic team that is there going, Timothy and others. And sisters, and that the Lord's message may spread quickly and be honored as in fact it was among you, and that we may prove uh, to be, that we may be delivered from perverse and evil people. For not all have faith. That's a very interesting text, and I'm going to tell you I changed my mind on that early this morning. I read that text. And, and I, I thought that what he was saying is, please pray for us so that persecutors don't pick on us. I said to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute, that can't, can't be right. He's talked to them about the way in which he came boldly with the gospel in the midst of his persecution. He came to them saying, if they came to faith in Jesus, they would be persecuted. This whole text is about standing fast in persecution. Why would he say to them, you guys stand fast, don't be moved, don't shake, pray for me that I don't suffer. Doesn't make sense, does it? And then I looked at that expression. This is what really tripped me. For not all have faith. Duh. Who is he talking about? Who is he talking about? It finally dawned on me what's taking place in this text. And I think the problem came for me from that word perverse. I, most all the translations, oh my, well, they got it wrong. They, 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 they take it in the sense of wicked or evil. So if you've got a little concordance program, go off and look up that word. You know what it means? Out of place. Out of place. When the thief on the cross is watching what Jesus is suffering and he's watching the mocking, he says to his fellow thief, he hasn't done anything out of place. He hasn't broken Roman law. He hasn't stepped outside the lines. Now, suppose then that what he is saying is, all men who profess to be believers, all men who profess to be speaking for me are not all believers. All of a sudden, the bells go off in my head. I'm saying, whoa, he's not praying that God will protect him from persecution. He is praying that God will protect the gospel from delusion. Isn't that the context of chapter 2? False teaching? He's saying, therefore, I'm praying that God will protect us, the apostolic team, from people who join with us, who say they are from us. Remember John talked about those who went out from us but really weren't with us? People who, in fact, claim to be believers, claim to be speaking the truth of the gospel, but they've crossed the line. Now, I was thinking about texts that, that make that pretty clear. 
Do you remember Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11? All the way through First Corinthians, you've got this division. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, whatever. Second Corinthians, it begins to heat up a little bit until you get to chapter 11. And now he says, these men are false apostles, messengers of Satan. They're not, they're not men with a true gospel message at all. Or when you think about Second Peter, and Paul is warning about false prophets and the message that they bring, and they come into your love feasts, he says. Those are people who are claiming to be in the fold and are not, and they are teaching perverse truth. They are deluding and deceiving. Second Timothy chapter 4, the last days. The world is going to want a new message, and they're going to draw to themselves the messengers who claim to have that. And those messengers may well claim to be proclaiming the faith, just as those people came to the Thessalonians and said, this is what Paul wants you to know. I think what Paul is praying is that God will protect them from people like that. By the way, in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2, he talks about Hymenaeus, remember, and Alexander, who he turned over to Satan that they would learn not to blaspheme. Those were people who departed from Paul and departed from the apostolic preaching of the gospel. So I understand this. This whole text to be about the purity of the gospel. That's why I changed my title in spite of all the ripples that makes for everybody else. The issue here is the purity of the gospel. Because when you dilute the gospel, you, you undermine the foundation on which saints stand and persevere. When you dilute the gospel, you dilute the message by which men are saved. There's no target bigger than the gospel of Jesus Christ for Satan. And he has his people. By the way, the next verse is going to go right there. If you think it is just men who are the problem, he says, no, no. Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. Here are these perverse oversteppers who are deceivers. It's the Lord who's faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Now, the text literally says the evil the text we read in John chapter 18 this morning, protect them from the, same phrase, the evil one. Ultimately, all deception has its roots, its foundation in Satan, the great liar and deceiver. All deception comes from him. So when he speaks about protection, now he moves beyond himself and the apostolic team and he says, behind all of this is Satan and his deceiving work. God is stronger than him. He will defeat him. He will take his instruments and blow them away with his breath. He is the one who will protect us and you and the truth of the gospel so that men may be saved and the gospel may go forward. Now, I'm not sure whether I made reference to this, but the imagery changes between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. In chapter 2, the gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, is a solid foundation. It, it's concrete. The other day, some guys were doing some work at our place, and they wanted to dig a hole to set some posts. And I said to them, well, actually, I poured uh, my own sidewalk, and I can assure you it's not three or four inches deep. It's at least six. I was wrong. It was eight. 
The guy says, oh yeah, this will work. <laughs> I want to tell you, you know, I built that to be a firm foundation. Now, it's not as firm as the gospel, but it was firm. So what he's saying there is, it's firm and it will not be moved. Therefore, anybody who stands on that gospel won't be moved either. Now, this is talking about the gospel in motion. And it's as though he's picked up the image of a runner. And so now what he's talking about is the gospel is speeding forth and he's praying that it will be prosperous. And the way it is to be prosperous is to be pure. It is the pure gospel that saves souls. It's a diluted gospel that is trouble. And that's why he sees Satan behind it. You might take that text, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is greater. He will protect not only Paul and those preachers, but also these saints from the evil one and his deceptive work. So you have verse 4, which is really an expression of Paul's confidence and encouragement. Will these people stand? If they're standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will. So he says, and we are confident about you. In the Lord. I said to you, this is a God-centered text. He's not saying, I know you guys work hard at it. You are really, really in there. He says, I'm confident in the Lord because the gospel and salvation is God's work. We participate, but it's Him, not us, who is the key to its success. So he expresses that confidence, which surely is an encouraging word to them. And that he will enable you in what you are both doing and will do. Remember Philippians? It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Paul is confident that is going to take place. Now he goes back to prayer. I see prayer as taking place three times in our short text. That's a lot. And he says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts toward the love of God and the endurance of Christ. In other words, he's saying, may God put your focus Godward. And when he does, you ought to be thinking in terms of the love of God and the endurance, the perseverance, the faithfulness of God. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, what Paul, at least for me, what Paul was doing here. What are the three words that characterize the benchmark for spiritual growth and progress for the Thessalonians, from First or Second Thessalonians? Faith. Hello. <laughs> love. He doesn't say faith, hope, and love. He says faith, love, and hope. What he's done is by turning the focus from man to God, he's saying this. Our faith is rooted in the faithfulness of God. That's why we can have faith and grow in faith because His faithfulness is where we stand for the present and for the future. Love. Well, we know, John says, we love because He first loved us. Three times in this passage, He tells the saints that they are loved by God. Now, a lot of people don't like the doctrine of election and they don't like to hear that God makes those big choices. 
Whatever you think of that, friend, Paul ties love and calling and choice together. When God chooses us, He chooses us to set His love on us. Election is not unloving. It is the choice to love. Well, I could get off on that and get all excited and then back off. Hope. Hope is based on the steadfast, sovereign power of God. We know God is good, but it's possible that there's a God who's good and weak. He's a God who is a God who loves and who is in absolute control. I said these false teachers want to undermine the end game of the gospel, which is entering into the glory of God. If God is absolutely sovereign, as he has emphasized in his proclamation of the gospel and his preservation of the saints, if God is absolutely sovereign, then what he promises is going to happen. Is it not? It's going to happen because God said it would. Oh my, I'm getting all excited. Okay, well let's move, let me say a couple of things in, in conclusion. I won't exactly follow the PowerPoint, but then I never really do. The purity of the gospel is the key to perseverance and the progress of the gospel. The purity of the gospel is the key to saints persevering. And the purity of the gospel is the key to the gospel advancing. And that is why, my friend, Satan is after the gospel. You want to know where Satan will come? He's going to come to the gospel. Because if he can undermine that, if he can modify that, if he can change it, take away the hope part, take away some other part of that gospel, then he has got men where he wants them. The gospel goes ahead when the gospel is proclaimed simply and purely. That's why Paul says, I'm old Johnny One... I know it's a tramp paraphrase. I'm old Johnny One Note. I preach Christ and Christ crucified. That is the message. He says in Galatians, if I come to you and I change anything I said about the gospel, in effect, to hell with me and to hell with anybody who changes that message. That's how important the gospel is. Is it not? And, my friend, that's why every week we need to rehearse exactly what that gospel is about. In some churches, and I love and respect people there, in some churches they have the gospel every week, but they're preaching to unbelievers. That's not the focus. We need to be preaching to ourselves about the gospel, reminding ourselves this is where we stand. This is how the gospel goes forth. And if an unbeliever happens to be in the crowd and hears that message and God's working in his heart, they'll get saved. But my point is, who's the target? Don't make Sunday morning the target for evangelism. Make Sunday morning the target for Christians to get Christ-centered. And then let the unbeliever hear it and get saved. Or maybe the Christian will go out and proclaim that message. The purity of the gospel is the key to preservation and it is the key to the proclamation of the gospel. The implications, I'm dropping down to C and D, the implications of the error that was being brought to Thessalonica was little God, big man. You see, Jesus had warned that, that those people would come who would say, I am the Messiah. 
Don't be deceived by people who say, I am the Messiah. If the day of the Lord is come, then Messiah must be here. And so some guy's going to come along and say, I'm it. What that does is diminish the bigness of God because it doesn't fulfill what God said would come when He came. So you have little God, big man. And that's the key to disaster. The message Paul has is, Big God, in which little men may be saved and stand. Right? Hello? <laughs> All right. I just want to know you're with me. Faith, love, and hope flow from God. The reason why saints can have faith is because God is faithful. The reason that they can love is because God is love and He loved us. The reason that we can persevere is because God is in control. Those are great benchmarks, but they're all rooted in God. Last point, the sovereignty of God and the persecuted church. November 14th is the day when there is prayer for the persecuted church. I hope we... As a church, we're talking about ways in which we can carry that out. But I want to tell you, my friends, there are people today, most Christians are in some way facing far more persecution than you and I are. And we ought to remember them. When we read this text, we ought to say to ourselves, we're the abnormality. We don't worry about people taking names when we walk out that door. In many places, that's exactly what's happening. We need to remember our brothers and sisters, the persecuted saints, and we need to pray for them. And we need to think in terms of this text because what God says to them to enable them to stand and to proclaim the gospel with boldness is exactly what we need to hear God saying to us. And frankly, my friend, we may soon be one of them. Father, thank you for these words from your text. Thank you for the purity of the gospel. Thank you for the way in which it exalts you. And it gives us a firm footing on which to stand. We pray that we would be alert to be attentive to the things that you have said and spoken through your word and that we would filter any other claim what you have said and trust only in your word and in the gospel as you have proclaimed it. Help us, Father, not only to be concerned with persecuted saints, but help us to be willing to endure what they are now enduring as the Thessalonians once did because they are so sure about your salvation. If there's someone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, may they be convicted of the fact that they are a rebel against you. They have rejected your truth. Help them see their sin and the fact that they deserve eternal judgment. Help them to know and trust in the Lord Jesus who bore that punishment so that they need not experience it. In Jesus' name.